0: Father, we ask that you would please be with us now as we look to your word. We acknowledge that without the Holy Spirit, we are unable to truly understand your word, unable to accept its truths, uh, for such things are spiritually uh, discerned. And so we ask that you would please help us. Uh, Please be with me that the words would be clear, that I would only say that which is uh, true and edifying And please be with those listening uh, that you might soften hearts even now that we might be eager to receive your word. Father, give us ears to hear uh, that the gospel of your Son might be clear to us today. We ask all this in the name of Christ our King. Amen. Well, please take out your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 4. This morning, Lord willing, we will be covering all of chapter 4 and the first five verses of chapter 5. You know, sometimes you'll be watching a movie and the opening scene of the movie is actually what chronologically comes last. And so the movie starts by showing you how the story ends and then kind of goes back through everything that leads up to that final moment. Uh, well, we're going to do a version of that uh, for our verses today. We're going to start with the ending, uh, the conclusion, and then we're going to work our way through the narrative that gets us to that point. And so uh, look at Second Samuel chapter 5, uh, verses 3 and following. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Hopefully, that wasn't a a spoiler or anything, in the sense that uh, we've all seen this coming. I mean, we knew that this would happen. We've known that this would happen since all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, right? Like when Samuel goes to the house of Jesse and anoints David to be the next king of Israel. But in the meantime, it's been a lot of waiting for David. Many years of waiting for David. And say, well, how many? We can do a little bit of math here. David's anointed in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And the next chapter, 1 Samuel 17, is when he goes and he kills Goliath. Uh, But in that battle, Only David's three oldest brothers are of military age and therefore fighting with Saul's army against the Philistines. Uh, And remember, the, the only reason David's even there is because he is sent by his father to bring his brother's food. So if David's still too young to fight in the army, and there's actually four brothers in between the three that are fighting in the army and David... A little bit of guesswork here, but I don't think it's going to be too far off from the truth to say that he probably wasn't older than maybe 15 years old when he fights Goliath. Now, if he becomes king of Judah at age 30, like chapter 5 verse 4 tells us, uh, that means it's about 15 years that passes before, uh, when, from when he was first anointed by Samuel to when he actually becomes king of Judah, but now, after fifteen long years, right? The wait is finally over, or so we think. But not quite, because while Judah comes under David's rule, the other eleven tribes, you'll remember, go with Abner, right? Who was Saul's military general, and they come under his kingdom as he takes the last living son of Saul, Ishbosheth, and makes him king. And Ishbosheth has the the title of king, but we all know who's uh, in charge, who's the guy pulling the strings. We know it's Abner who has the power. But what that means is more waiting for David. More waiting for God's promise to be fully realized. But then the story takes a turn when, as we covered last week, uh, Ishbosheth accuses Abner of trying to take the throne from him. And that accusation seriously offends Abner. After all the loyalty that I have shown to you and to your father's family, uh, I'm the one who made you king in the first place. You're now going to accuse me of disloyalty? Abner's furious, and that leads him to switching sides. And so he comes to David. He tries to make a deal. I will peacefully bring the 11 tribes under your rule. You can finally rule over all Israel, as God has promised. And now it seems like the wait is finally over, uh, that all Israel will now be peacefully united under David's rule. But then the story takes another turn when Joab, David's military commander, when Joab kills Abner in cold blood. In part, is revenge for uh, Abner killing Joab's brother. In part, because Joab saw Abner as a threat to his own position within David's kingdom. But because of Joab's actions, well, that peaceful union of the 12 tribes, now that's under threat. And so we come to this chapter with, with all these questions. Uh, will the other 11 tribes still come to David now that Abner, who was leading this whole thing, now that he's dead... And what's King Ishbosheth going to do? And most importantly, will David ever get his kingdom? At this point, it's probably been about 22 years since Samuel first anointed him. Will David ever get to become king over all Israel? In order to bring those questions to rest, put your minds at ease. Now you can kind of sit back and and enjoy the sermon, uh, knowing that by the end, yes... David will be king over Israel. God's promises to him will be fulfilled. But if our study through first and second Samuel has shown us anything, we just know. Like, like even before we read a single verse of chapter four, we just know nothing seems to come easily for David. And nothing seems to come peacefully for David. Chapter 1, he's mourning Saul and Jonathan's death. Chapter 2, Asahel is killed. Chapter 3, Joab murders Abner. Like there's just lots and lots and lots of death. Which brings us to chapter 4. And we all know what's coming here. Let's take a look at uh, the verses now. Chapter 4, the last narrative before David is finally crowned king over all Israel. Now our outline this morning—it's uh, going to be brought to you by uh, the kings of this narrative. And so, if you're taking notes, point number one: we're going to look at the house of King Saul. Point number one is the house of King Saul. Chapter four, verse one: When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. This relationship between Ishbosheth and, and Abner. Complicated to say the least, right? Like, we're not quite sure if Ishbosheth even liked Abner uh, or ever trusted Abner. But one thing is certain and undeniable, and that's that Ishbosheth needed Abner. Uh, can't live with him, sure, but definitely can't live without him. Like, Abner was the reason that he was king, Abner was the source of any strength that the kingdom of Ishbosheth had. And so when news of Abner's death comes to Ishbosheth, look at verse one, his courage failed. Uh, the foundation of his kingdom was always kind of shaky, but now Ishbosheth knew for sure that his days are, as king were numbered. Now, Ishbosheth's one of those minor Bible characters. Right? Maybe he comes up every now and then in like Bible trivia, but, but he's, he's not exactly a well known figure. If you think about it, we know a lot more about his general, Abner, which makes sense because, again, Abner was the one who was really running the kingdom. But we don't really know anything about Ishbosheth from these narratives. And what we do have paints him as this really passive and weak guy. Not exactly the, the, the kingly leader type. Remember in the beginning of chapter 3, when he accuses Abner of rebellion? Well, Abner claps back, and, and he, Ishbosheth just gets really quiet. Could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. And then when he hears that Abner is dead, we're told that his courage failed. Like he is consistently portrayed as this weak, helpless character. I guarantee you right now, if I were to go up to the attic and, and I were to say to the kids, all right, kids, uh, we're going we're gonna to play pretend. Uh, which Old Testament character do you want to be like? you I can mean, be like, I want to be like Moses. I want to be like David. I want to be like Joshua. Guarantee you, no kid wants to be Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth is constantly and consistently portrayed as being weak, which in turn, I think, tells us something about David. David's patience, his waiting on the Lord, his not taking matters into his own hands. I mean, Abner, Abner was a strong dude. Right, a strong personality, strong leader, military general. And so maybe the the one who's skeptical of David says, "Sure David appears patient, but really it's just that he doesn't want to mess with Abner." Okay. But now look at what's happening. Abner is dead. And Ishbosheth is alone. Ishbosheth is trembling. Ishbosheth is always portrayed as weak. At this point, and David could probably glance in Ishbosheth's direction, and he would just kind of fall like a house of cards. And yet, David still makes no move for the throne. David continues to patiently wait for God to do something. And David doesn't stop seeking to honor the house of Saul, and we're going to see that really clearly in his actions in this chapter. Quick application here for us to think about waiting on the Lord doesn't always look the same for us in every season either. Sometimes waiting on the Lord is is basically forced upon us, right? Like it's out of our hands. Uh, Just circumstantially, we really have no choice but to, quote-unquote, wait for the Lord. And then at other times, waiting seems like much more of a choice. where We have the opportunity to take matters into our own hands. We have the opportunity to, to compromise, or perhaps even to sin, that we might bring about the ends that we desire. And that is the truer measure of our obedience, is it not? Like, it's easier to wait on the Lord when you have no other opportunities available. The greater test of waiting on the Lord is when there is the temptation to take shortcuts, the temptations to compromise, the temptations to sin. It's easier to wait on the Lord uh, for the kingdom that he's promised you when mighty Abner is your opposition. Uh, the greater test of waiting on the Lord is when the temptation to run over a weak Ishbosheth presents itself. Now look at verse 2. Introduced here to uh, two new characters, uh, Banna and Rechab. Uh, interesting story. Uh, when... Uh, our youngest son was born. Uh, my wife and I were down to three names. Uh, it was Banna, Recab, and Paxton. No, but I, I, where did they, they get these names, right? But they're de- described here as captains of raiding bands. You have know, these raiding bands that would go out and, and plunder the Canaanites. And they're described as sons of Rimon, a man, from, man of Benjamin from Beeroth. And then, look in your Bibles, we're given this like random parenthetical geographical detail about where Beeroth was. For Beeroth, also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Getaim and have been sojourners there to this day. You say, why that random detail? Well, Beeroth—you can read about that city in Joshua chapter nine. Uh, when the Israelites come in and conquer the Promised Land, the people of Beeroth are spared. Because the Gibeonites basically trick the Israelites into making a covenant with them. And so it's originally, even after the conquest, a Canaanite town. But over the years, something happened. We're not exactly sure what. something happened in which the original Berothites, people from Beirothoth, were driven out of the town, right? They're driven to Getaim. And so therefore, right, the author's point is at this time, Beeroth was a Benjamite town. That is, Israelites from the tribe of Benjamin are living in Beeroth. The author provides those details to drive home the point, drive home the fact that Banah and Rechab were not like some random foreigners. They were not some random Canaanites. They were from the tribe of Benjamin. It's as if he's reminding his readers. Right? Hey, don't think that they're Canaanites just because they're from Beeroth. Remember that Beeroth now belongs to the Benjamites. If you didn't follow anything that I just said about the geography, don't worry about the details. The key thing to know here is that these two guys, Bana and Rechab, they're from the tribe of Benjamin, which of course happens to be Saul and Ishbosheth's tribe. As in the treachery that's about to happen to Ishbosheth, it's going to happen at the hands of his own kinsmen. Verse 4 Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet he was 5 years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel and his nurse took him up and fled and as she fled in her haste he fell and became lame and his name was mephibosheth now those of you who have read ahead you'll recognize that name mephibosheth it comes back up in chapter 9 and he's probably best known for the undeserved kindness that king david shows to him but I can say why is this here like, why introduce Mephibosheth here uh, when this chapter uh, and the few chapters that follow have nothing to do with him? Like, if you look in your Bibles, right? If you take out verse 4, the narrative flows really smoothly. And so you say, why is this detail included here? I think what's going on here is the author is trying to drive home a point that there are now no true contenders to the throne from the house of Saul. Remember chapter 3, verse 1? The house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Well, this is what it's come to for the house of Saul, right? They lose Abner. Ishbosheth's courage has failed, and we're about to find out. Ishbosheth's soon going to be dead. And the only remaining potential heir is Mephibosheth. And he's crippled in his feet. He's unable to walk. And if he was five when Saul and Jonathan died, he's probably about 12 at the time of this writing. Point number one, the house of King Saul. The author is making the point here in these first four verses that the king, the house of King Saul, has no true contenders for the throne left. There are no legitimate heirs to the crown. And one clue that we have that this is less about these individuals, Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth, but more about the house of Saul, well, look at how these guys are described. Verses one and two. Ishbosheth is described as Saul's son. Like we know that he's Saul's son. We've known that for several chapters. But the author drives that point home. In Mephibosheth, verse 4, we're also told up front about his lineage. The author deliberately links him back to King Saul. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son named Mephibosheth. And so Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth. Are direct descendants of Saul. And so, after the events of this chapter, Ishbosheth is dead. Mephibosheth remains crippled in his feet. There will be no contenders to the throne from the house of Saul. Point number one the house of King Saul. Point number two the murder of King Ishbosheth. Let me get to the really juicy part of the story here. Verse 5. Now the sons of Rimmon the Beerethite, Rechab and Bana, set out, and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. And then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. A few things to consider here. First question, uh, as I'm reading this, first question that pops into my mind uh, where, where is the security? I can't get into City Field with a half open bottle of Poland Spring, and here's these two dudes just kind of rolling up on Ishbosheth's nap, like what's going on here? Remember, his kingdom is currently at war against David's kingdom, and they're always worried about the Philistine threat. And so, where is the security? How do these two guys just walk in like that? Well, again, this brings us back to that important detail from earlier. Rechab and Banna, they're not random Canaanites. They were Benjamites. And they were captains of Ishbosheth's raiding bands. And so they probably had some high level of security clearance. And they, so they come to Mahanaim under the guise of... Um, Getting rations of wheat for their soldiers. Everybody knows who they are, and so they do all of this without triggering any alarms. Second, I want you to notice how Ishbosheth dies. They stabbed him in the stomach. For those of you keeping score, this is the third straight chapter with a death by stomach wound. Asahel, struck by Abner in the stomach with the butt of his spear. Abner struck in the stomach in the gates of Hebron by Joab. And here now, Ishbosheth struck in the stomach by these two assassins in his own bed. Not exactly sure what the significance there is. You don't want to read too much into it, but the author does go out of his way to point it out. And so we should at least take notice. And at the very least, it's ironic that the two leaders of the opposition, Abner and Ishbosheth, should both be killed by treachery. In the same way let's continue in verse seven. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and they said to the king, "Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. And if you're having flashbacks now, that's a good thing, because that means you've been paying attention. Right? We have seen this movie before. Remember the Amalekite? He tells David he killed Saul, and he brings Saul's crown as proof that Saul was dead, thinking that he would receive a reward. Well, this is basically the same thing. Rechab and Bena they bring Ishbosheth's head all the way to Hebron, angling of a reward, angling for a reward of some sorts. Maybe a, a prominent position within David's new kingdom, David's new government. And perhaps the most interesting thing here is how they uh, couched what they did in very theological language. The Lord has avenged you. Basically what they're saying here is that God used them to avenge David. And so the inference is that since we are the Lord's instruments in helping you, you ought to reward us. But clearly, I think we know David well enough at this point. To know that he is clearly not going to buy whatever they're selling. Verse 9 David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, the sons of Rimmon the Beerethite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. Uh, and he, David points out there that it's the Lord who has redeemed his life out of every adversity, as in God is my fortress and my defender. And so, Recab and Bana, I don't need your wicked help. God has always been with me. And God has always protected me. God has always worked everything out for me. Verse 10, When one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, this is referring to the Amalekite from chapter 1, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. You just don't know, picture or recap, like elbowing Bana, like I told you we shouldn't have done this. How much more? When wicked men have killed a righteous man, as in he didn't do anything to deserve death, how much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? For the saying, those who uh, fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Uh, That's exactly what happens here, right? Recab and Bana, you should have known. You should have been paying attention. David commanded his young men and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. They took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Now you'll remember all the way back, this is going back a couple of months now to 1 Samuel chapter 24. That's a chapter where David has a chance to kill Saul, but he doesn't. And Saul, like, repents uh, of trying to kill David. Not really, but he says all the right things. Uh, There's an important exchange that happens then uh, that's very relevant to what David does here. And so flip back to 1 Samuel 24. Saul is speaking here. Look at verses 20 and following. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king. He's talking to David. And that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. And so we have seen over and over and over in these chapters, uh, whether it's in honoring Saul and Jonathan in their deaths or honoring Abner in his death, or here, bringing justice on Ishbosheth's killers, or looking ahead, the kindness that he shows to Mephibosheth, we see David has faithfully kept this promise. Like, consistently, he not only doesn't do anything against the house of Saul, but he goes out of his way to honor the house of Saul. And so, perhaps predictably, David has these men put to death. And he makes this like public spectacle of it by hanging their bodies. So here we see David very clearly fulfilling his new role as judge of the nation. You see where he says, verse 11, Shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? That's judicial language. As a matter of fact, destroy you, that word in Hebrew, that's judicial language borrowed from the book of Deuteronomy. You know in Deuteronomy when uh, God gives a law and then he gives the punishment for breaking that law. And then he gives the rationale uh, for why they should punish the offender. You shall purge the evil from your midst. Uh, That word purge from Deuteronomy, that's the same word that's translated destroy here. Uh, It's referring to justice uh, by capital punishment. Uh, That is what King David, the judge, is doing here. He is purging the evil according to God's law. From the midst of his kingdom. But just like with everything else that David has done with regard to the house of Saul. in all these chapters. It's coming from a heart that truly does seek to honor Saul and his family. But remember there's also a very public facing aspect to everything that he does as king. Like David has to go out of his way to show everybody in Israel. That he has not been involved in any way with the death of Saul. The death of Saul's sons, the death of Abner, or here with the death of Ishbosheth. Because surely there were those in Israel who suspected him of masterminding all of this. Oh, look at that. David sent somebody to go kill Ishbosheth right after he sent Joab to kill Abner. And so he makes this very public spectacle in hanging the bodies of Ishbosheth's murderers, again, to distance himself as much as he can from this crime. I had nothing to do with it. Point number two the murder of King Ishbosheth. Now, well, let's kind of take a step back here. Let's think about the bigger picture of what's going on. Now, David clearly did not approve of these guys murdering Ishbosheth, but it is undeniable, as we come to the end of the chapter, the house of Saul is now completely powerless. That this wickedness, like the wickedness of Joab killing Abner, was used by God to bring about his promises to David. We see this like recurring theme in the Bible. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And so after all that waiting, this is like 22 years, God has, in his sovereign providence, orchestrated all things so that David now has a clear path to the throne. Which brings us to point number three, the coronation of King David. All the contenders are now out of the picture, right? Point number one, the house of King Saul. Point number two, the murder of King Ishbosheth. right? The last guy, he's gone. It's like, it's like the nail in the coffin. There are no more serious contenders to the throne. And so we come to chapter five, to the coronation of King David. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. This is amazing, right? That The people not only come to David to submit to his kingship, but they come to him with reasons as to why they're doing it like justifications for why they should do what they're doing. First, behold, we are your bone and flesh. Basically, you're one of us. You're you're an Israelite. Deuteronomy 17:15, the Israelites are commanded to set one from among your brothers as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Well, David is their brother. Behold, an Israelite indeed. Behold, we are your bone and flesh. Second, look at the beginning of verse 2. Even when Saul was king, you were the one who would go out and fight our battles for us. You were the one who was really valiant in war. In that sense, you've been like our king for a long time, even when Saul was technically ruling. Third end of verse two. This is the fulfillment of God's promise that you shall be shepherd over us, that you shall be prince over us. There's a lot that can be said there about uh, the shepherd imagery. We'll, We'll save that for another day. For now, I just want you to notice how all the people acknowledge this is exactly according to all of the promises of God. So now we come back to the ending, right, which is where we started. David is crowned king. Point number three, the coronation of King David. And First Chronicles 12, uh, it's helpful for us because it gives us a few more details about the coronation. First uh, Chronicles 12, 38 to 40. All these men of war, arrayed in battle order, came to Hebron with a whole heart to make David king over all Israel. Likewise, all the rest of Israel were of a single mind to make David king. And they were there with David for three days, eating and drinking, for their brothers had made preparation for them. And also their relatives from as far as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali came bringing food on donkeys and on camels and on mules and on oxen, abundant provisions of flour, cakes of figs, clusters of raisins and wine and oil, oxen and sheep, for there was joy in Israel." Huge celebration, the coronation. There was joy in Israel. Their long-awaited king was finally on a throne. Great joy in Israel. Friends, I don't know about you. I'm kind of feeling some of that joy myself. Like, Like we have been waiting for this moment for many, many months as we've kind of slowly worked our way through the books of Samuel. And if we've been waiting for months, right? David's been patiently waiting for years, for decades. This is the moment that he's been waiting for. And bigger picture, there's a sense in which everything that's been written in the Old Testament up to this point has been working towards this moment. You think about God bringing his people out of slavery, right? In the Exodus, bringing his people into the promised land driving out the inhabitants through the conquest. Now finally, here in 2 Samuel chapter 5, we have God's king ruling over God's people in God's land. This is a huge moment in biblical history. And so perhaps there were those in Israel who genuinely wondered, is this then the fulfillment of? Of all of the promises to Abraham. Is this then the redemption of mankind that was promised in the garden? Now that God's anointed king is finally on his throne. The people of Israel are united under his rule. God's kingdom has been established in that sense. Has the head of the serpent been crushed for good? And the answer is a resounding no. Not only is the curse still very much alive, not only does sin still wreak havoc, but in a few short chapters, it's going to be God's anointed king himself who sins greatly against his nation, against his people, and against his God. And after that, this king is going to be driven into exile by his own son who tries to overthrow the kingdom. And after that, this king's successor is going to commit so much sin against God that God is going to divide the kingdom into two. And you go a number of generations down the line, this same kingdom that's so gloriously established here in 2 Samuel chapter 5, this same kingdom is going to be completely wiped out by God himself as judgment for sin when he takes his people into exile. And so, yes, this is a fulfillment of God's promise that we have been tracking for many chapters. This is a moment uh, that, in a sense, every previous generation of Israelites looked forward to. This is a very significant event in biblical history. But no, this is not the end. David is not the king who will redeem God's people. David cannot crush the head of the serpent. David has not established God's ultimate kingdom. And so on one hand, uh, the coronation of King David gives us some of the resolution that we've been longing for since 1 Samuel chapter 16. But on the other hand, uh, the coronation of King David leaves us longing for something greater. And that brings us to point number four, the picture Of King Jesus. The house of King Saul, the murder of King Ishbosheth, the coronation of King David, all of that points us to point number four the picture of King Jesus. King David, even in his becoming king, points us to a greater king to come. Because we need a greater king than King David could ever be. We need a king who can save God's people not just from the Philistines or the Canaanites no we need to be saved from even greater enemies our own sin our own depravity of the eternal death in hell that we deserve as a result we need a king who can rule over God's people not just for 40 years only for someone else to then take his place. No, since we are eternal beings with eternal souls, we need a king who can rule eternally, who can always live to make intercession for us. We need a king who can unite God's people, not just bringing the 12 tribes together for a generation or two, only to see them divide again. No, we need a shepherd who will unite himself to all of his people that we might be one flock with one shepherd. David was not that king. And friends, the reason that David could never be that king is that King David was, at the end of the day, himself just a man. Remember the Israelites say to David, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. Well, that was true. They were fallen sinners, and so was he. They were sons of Adam, and so was he. He could never be their savior. David was just a type of the son of David, the greater David, the Christ. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, very God of very God, he took on human flesh. He became like one of us. And so it could be said of him, behold, we are your bone and flesh. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect, Hebrews 2. But at the same time, he remains fully God. This Jesus, fully God and fully man, lives the perfect life that you and I could never live. But he dies on a Roman cross. Not for his own sins, for he had none, but for sinners like you and me. Takes upon himself our sins. He suffers the wrath of God in our place. And he gives us his perfect righteousness in exchange. So that while he dies on the cross, you and I can be forgiven. Forgiven of our sins. Our records wiped clean. Credited with his perfect obedience. And then three days later, he rose again from the dead. To show that he did indeed complete the work that he set out to do. Then he ascended into heaven where he will rule and reign forever as the king of kings. And you, you today can be saved if you believe that he died on the cross for your sins. If you believe that God raised him from the dead. If you repent of your sins and put your full trust in him and him alone. You can be saved. Point number four the picture of King Jesus. Friends, perhaps you can relate to the people of Israel. To this point in your life, you've placed your trust in the kingdom of Saul. In the house of Saul, you 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 have placed your trust in the Abners and the Ishbosheths of the world, and over and over and over, they have demonstrated to you just how weak and powerless they are. Whatever those idols are for you—your friends, your, your family, your, your job, your education, your money, your success, your popularity, your image—whatever it is. Time and time again, it has disappointed you. It has let you down. It has clearly shown to you how weak and how powerless it really is. And my plea to you this morning is to come to Christ. Perhaps you're sitting there and you're thinking, How could God save me? How could He save me now? When I have rejected him over and over. When I have listened to the gospel and tuned it out so many times. Well, years and years, you followed Ishbosheth, You followed the course of this world. You followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. You have rebelled against Christ for years and years. And you proudly said in your heart, I will not have this man to rule over me. You have rejected God over and over and over. And perhaps you feel, it's too late for me. I am too far gone. Christ would never have a sinner like me who has rejected him so often in his kingdom. I want you to notice how King David welcomes into his kingdom those who have long rebelled against him. I think the most remarkable thing about what the Israelites say in the beginning of chapter 5, when they're coming to David, hey, here are the reasons why you should be king over us. Remember those three reasons? The most remarkable thing is that none of those three reasons are new. David has always been their kinsman. David has always fought valiantly for them. They have always known. God's promise that David would be king. None of those things are new to chapter 5. All three of those things have been true for years and years and years. But for years and years and years, the Israelites have rejected him. They've suppressed those truths. They've joined the opposing kingdom and they have fought against him. The only thing that's changed now is that the house of Saul is completely gone. And so the skeptic and the cynic within us imagines David being like, you know what? The tribe of Judah, they came early. But the rest of you, you only came when Neshbosheth died. You only came when you had nowhere else to go. You are not true servants. Get out of my kingdom. But David doesn't do that. He welcomes the rebels. He welcomes the enemies. He welcomes the holdouts, the wicked, the hard-hearted, those who warred against his kingdom, those who repeatedly sinned against him. And if David is like that, oh, how much more is the greater David like that? God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Friend, Jesus will not turn you away because you have turned him away in the past. If you truly come to him as your only hope and plea, if you truly repent of your sins and you trust in him alone, he will not turn you away. He welcomes home the prodigal with open arms. He is a friend of sinners. You are not too far gone. You have not gone the way of the world for too long. You have not sinned too greatly that you cannot come to Christ today. And so Jesus says, John six thirty seven. all that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes, whether you're from the tribe of Judah and you've been with David from early on, or you're from the kingdom of Israel. And you foolishly followed Ishbosheth all these years only to find out that the, the house of Saul is indeed powerless. And then you come to David in desperation with nowhere else to turn. Israel, David will not cast you out. David became king over all Israel. And whoever comes, whether by grace you were saved at, at a young age, You grew up in a Christian home, praise God. Or you came into Christ's kingdom at a later age, after years of of foolishly chasing after the things of the world. Or perhaps you've come to the end of yourself today. Fully convinced now that there is nowhere else to turn. Lord, to whom shall we go? You and you alone have the words of eternal life. Well, whoever comes whoever the Father has sovereignly called, I will never cast out. And so I can say to you, today is the day of salvation. Friends, in your heart of hearts, you know this to be true, that every other contender for the throne of your heart will ultimately fail you. But Christ stands to save you today. Today is the day to acknowledge Christ as your Lord and your King. And oh, just like there was great joy in Israel when the Israelites came to David. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Father, what a glorious picture this is of the kingdom of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for all those in this room right now who have been aligning themselves under the Ishbosheths and the Abners, chasing after the things of this world, refusing to bow the knee to Christ. God, we pray that you by your sovereign will, would call such sinners to repentance. That the Holy Spirit would do the work of regeneration in their hearts even now, Lord, that they might come to Christ. And Father, we pray for those in this room who have come to Christ by your sovereign grace. Father, we pray that we would this day rejoice in the gospel of your Son. For it is by the gospel alone that we have been reconciled to you.